0: You have to know, as a, as a Gen Xer, there's few things that I find more joy in than mocking millennials or blaming boomers, really. That's kind of like my generational sweet spot. And, um, and these guys, those, those are pretty funny. So, um, but, I, but it made me think about this question. What do young adults have to offer the church? And uh, there's, this, uh, there's kind of a generational gap that's going on, a generational uh, challenge and struggle um, that's happening. And uh, for me, I've always, uh, the way I view myself is uh, as I'm a young adult. Uh, I was part of the young adult cohort of the church. You know, me and my friends, we came to church. We started families. Everyone's like, oh, young adults, we need you. We ca- they cared about us. We had a space. And, uh, and somewhere along the line, I slipped into being a middle-aged man. I don't know what happened there, because in my mind, I am young and hip and cool. And, uh, and, and one of our youth staff a few years ago broke, uh, you know, popped my bubble on this. I said, hey, Travis, you know, we're like the same, right? We were talking about the generation stuff. I'm like, you know, we're, you and I, we're, we're the same. I mean, you just have a kid and I have a couple kids. And, and he's like, no, you're old. Like you're part of those people. And I'm like, no, it can't be true. I'm part of the young adult crowd. And, uh, and it was interesting. But from that moment, for the last couple of years, God has been doing this work in me and and, uh, and changing me and um, and helping me understand and, and recognize that for doing youth ministry for so long that these kids that we've been doing youth ministry forever and ever are, right, young adults. They're a part of our church. They're part of our world. And in two years, they're going to be 50% of the workforce. I mean, this cohort of people are gigantic. And, uh, and I think it's helpful for us to think about as a church, what do they really have uh, to offer the church? And you look at everything, not just in the church, not just uh, silly comedians, but even like Time magazine Up. Oh, too far, wants to go, you know, the me, me, me generation, millennials, uh, and the lazy, entitled, um, you know, and they still live with their parents. And, and, I, and, and for me, I'm like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Um, but what's interesting is for all of us, and not just in generational theory, it goes in for politics and spirituality and, and our walk with God, we have, we all are subject to this thing called confirmation bias. What that simply means is there's a narrative, and anything that adds fuel to that narrative, we go, yes, that's true, that's true. Any information that goes against that narrative, we go, that can't be true, and we discard it. We don't even remember it. And so for most of our culture, we live in this way of going, oh, those millennials. And, and even the millennials I get to hang out with are like, we hate, oh, we are these, or we hate that, that label or whatever. And, uh, but if, what if we just for a minute, we just took off all those labels, and we just realized there's actually a bigger thing going on, which is adults have just always hated young people. Um, these are, when I was a young person in my 20s, this is, this is the Gen X crew right here. Uh, what does it say there? Laid back, late blooming, or just lost, overshadowed by the baby boomers. America's next generation it was a hard act to follow. Us Gen Xers, we had so much technology. We were the video generation. We had camcorders, man, and we made home videos, and it was legit, and our parents were like, this is going to ruin people, you know? But, you know, let's just be honest. It's not just us. I mean, you boomers, your parents hated you too. They didn't know what was going on. They're like, the generation gap, what's going on with these guys? You know, Woodstock and everything that's happening, they didn't know what to do. And so I think at the end of the day, right, there's this, uh, that maybe old people just don't know what to do with young people. I love this quote. It says, anything that is in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary and is just a natural part of the way the world works. All of us in this room were born since the time of automobiles, hopefully. (laughs) If not, God bless you. Yes. Um, But what's crazy is when the automobile came into existence, everyone freaked out. What's this going to mean for community, for relationships, for dynamics? People are going to work and live in different places. How's that going to, you know, people flipped out. We're like, "Uh, yeah, we have a car. That's how it works. Well, anything that's invented between when you're 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary, and you can probably get a career in it, right? We love technology. Young people love, love, love technology. But there's this weird thing around 35, and you freak out. Anything invented after your 35 is against the natural order of things. (laughs) Who lives like this? We don't know. This is by Douglas Adams. Does anyone know who Douglas Adams is? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, my dad loves this book, 1979, so hip, right? If you're like, I love hitchhikers, you are old, right? You are part of the old people. If you're looking at me and going, Ben, you're so young, then you are old, right? We are on the other end of the spectrum. We are the old people now. Okay? So if we're the old people, we have to figure out what to do. So the last person to bag on millennials, sorry, is is my my good buddy Socrates. Young people nowadays love luxury. They have bad manners and uh, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for old people, contradict their parents, talk consistently in front of company, gobble their food, and tyrannize their teachers. He hates those millennials. That's Socrates. (laughs) Socrates. So I just think it's helpful if we just change our lens, we change our narrative for a second and realize not one generation's bad, not one generation's good, that at, we are just human beings. We're on this road of trying to figure out how to live life, and we just need to own as old people, myself and, and older, like, we are freaked out by young people, and we hate them, according to all the media around there. And if you're a young person, you're like, that's what I'm talking about! Where, where's my place? And what's awful is, well, if we don't make a place and a space for them, They don't come. They're not part of our world. You look around our church, right? It's this tiny little cohort of people because they're not sure. Is the church a place for me? So we're going through this passage, uh, Summer of the scriptures, and we're trying to read through all these passages. And thankfully, this week um, I got the short week. All these chapters were nice and short. You know, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Philemon. Um, but the passage I chose to memorize is, a, is my favorite youth ministry verse. It's First Timothy four twelve. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, and in your faith, and your purity. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, in your purity. Now, Paul, right, he was the apostle. He was the man. He was going all over Southeast Asia and, uh, I mean, Southeast uh, Europe and and spreading the gospel. And he left Timothy, this young leader, to be behind, to be the person in charge with all of his gifts, with all of his abilities, to be the person who's going to be the representative of Paul, to be a leader for these people, to help these people who had no clue about Christianity to learn about Christianity. That was his charge. And Paul said, don't let anybody look down on you. Now, for the longest time, because I've, in my mind, I'm young and hip and cool, in my mind, I'm like, that's right. Don't look down on me. I can do what I want. And, I'm, and then, oh, the set example part, I'll worry about that later, but, which we'll get to in the end. But that's how we view it. We think, don't look down on me all of our self-understanding is so much younger than we really are. But this week when I read this passage of Scripture, God just crushed me and opened my eyes, and I spent the last week just really wrestling with what if this passage wasn't actually for young people, but what if this was for us old people in the church? Because I think young people, young adults, have so much to offer the church to help the church offer the world And what if we, instead of looking down on them, writing them off, making fun of them in silly videos, what if we said, what do they actually have to offer? What can we as a church be open-handed about and say, God, have your way in our whole church, in our whole demographic? So I came up with a couple things that I think that young people, young adults bring to our church. The first is this, that young people are genuinely special. They get a bad rap for being snowflakes or participation awards or whatever. But I think if we're honest, it's just that we are jealous. We were the throwaway generation. We are, you know, World War II parents came back. Their parents were alcoholics. Our, my generation, everyone got divorced and had to work full time, right? We were just bummed. We, we were bummed and we were abandoned. There's all the sociology and, and psychology research about this abandonment that happened for uh, Gen Xers, right? So when I think, why, why do millennials going to be so special? Let's be honest. A lot of that is our own garbage and our own junk. What young adults bring to the table is they understand because they've been finally told for the first time that they are unique. There's are these unique gifts that God has made. They have a unique passion, a unique ability, and they bring a unique perspective to the workplace, to the church, to everywhere they go. And for some reason, as the adults, as gatekeepers, we think, we're glad you think you're special, but you need to color in these lines and live this way if you want to be a part of our organization. And everything about that just chafes against them because they've, from the beginning of time, they've been told that they are unique and special, and at their best, the church needs to lean into that. We need to understand that you as human beings in this body are totally unique, totally special. You are God's unique crafted masterpiece created for good works, right? We're all part of the body of Christ. We all have different parts and different functions. But for some reason, we know that theologically, but we make such little space for people to truly be different and bring different perspectives and different passions. And so what if we older people step back and understood this idea that all people especially our young adults, have so much to bring to the table. They are unique, and they are special, and they are crafted by God for a unique purpose, and we just need to let them loose. The second is this, that um, that young adults, um, they value diversity and tolerance. Now, as an older person, I mean, all us, most of us live in suburbia, and the way that suburbia works, um, historically, is we found a spot to live, and we live in a homogenous community. And truthfully, anywhere you live, in the whole country, up to about 20 years ago, was a, a, this homogenous community. You lived with people who were like you, who believed like you, who thought like you. So everyone that I know is mostly like me. All the people I grew up with are mostly like me. But the young adults, They have a totally different perspective. They went to school, they went to college with people from every ethnicity, from every religion, from every walk of life, from every sexuality, from every gender. They interacted and have real life relationship with people from the entire spectrum. For me, I read about most of those people. I wish I knew them, but I grew up in a time when I just knew my people. But they actually know, know, know those people. So in the core of their being, they value diversity, they value tolerance, they excuse me, they are so opposed and can smell out when, uh, when we, out of fear, try to cut away and marginalize human beings who may not agree with us or think like us. And if we're not careful, the world is changing so quickly. There's so many people and different types of people. In our fear, it's so natural that we just cut away and dehumanize anyone who's different. But young adults will not tolerate any of it. Young adults will stand up and make sure that every human being on the planet regardless of any other characteristics, by the very fact that they're human beings, are made in the image of God and deserving of respect and dignity. And man, wouldn't the church be better off if we had that voice a little more and more? I love also that young adults are activists and they put their faith to work. Now, Christians for all of history have been activists. The best thing about the church is that faith without works is dead. That The abolitionist movement was actually Christians at their best leaning into that. The whole pro-life movement, those were Christians at their best valuing human dignity and adopting. It was, the, it was Christians who set up orphanages. It was Christians who set up foster care system. It's the vast majority of the foster care, foster, adopt people in the whole world. Those are Christians because Christians at our core, when we are shaped by Christ, we long to be activists and to impact the world. So they've heard from their parents to be pro-life, 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 pro-life. But then we kind of got into a political fight, and we, now we fight politics instead of being pro-life, pro-life. And they're like, no, all of life matters. From the very beginning of life to the end, all over the world. And I love young adults because when they, when they go on mission, if they're going to go on a mission trip, they don't just go to play with kids. They're going to make sure that they're going to be a better— uh, they're going to impact that community and let that community know that Jesus loves them as well. There's been wells put all over the world in the last 10 years because young adults get that when we go on mission— We need to go and be the embodiment of Christ, to bring the good news of Christ. And Christ cares about compassion, mercy, and justice. And to bring a well to a community dramatically changes the community because now all the women don't have to spend all day getting water just to live. And that opens up all sorts of options for those women and for those communities. When we go uh, and set up a child care system, it's not just a child care system. They recognize when we go to Nicaragua, this child care system that we're a part of is to help women not have the streets be the only place for them to make a living, but recognizing through community and education, that's what's going to move them towards a full life and a life in Christ. And that's because that's led by young women and men who have a passion to be activists. And gosh, wouldn't the church just be incredible if those people had a louder voice and were pushing us further and further to be activists for all of life? And lastly, young adults, I think they value authentic, inspiring, and passionate worship. The way that they engage worship, the way that they engage God in worship is incredible. It's totally different. Um, I went and spoke at a, a middle school retreat this, this, um, this spring, I mean, sorry, this last summer. And, um, and I'm at this big church, and it was these, like, group of, like, seven 23-year-olds with, like, crazy hair and tight jeans. And uh, it was a light show and a fog machine, and the, 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 it was awful. I'm not going to lie. I was like, oh, this is so awful. I, who, who can even sing along? And I'm like, I'm an old person. I, could, I just could not believe, like, all the complaints that we ever hear about worship. is like, oh, I'm an old person. But all these young people were passionately engaged in celebration about who God is and running after God and worshiping God. And there's a gigantic new worship movement that's happening by young adults. And we old people are like, well, we did the worship movement. Remember Maranatha? We love drums, you know. <laughs> but we're old people and I love our church and we have great middle-aged worship. It's so great because we're middle-aged, you know. And... Um, But we have to make space for these younger voices who love Jesus, who sing about things that are a little different than what we sing about, and in a way, in a style that's different than we sing about, because what they bring is authentic and inspiring and passionate worship. And I think we as a church can no longer look down on young adults and say, get in line and become like us. But we actually have to recognize they're a valuable part of the body of Christ. They bring incredible life and corrective lenses that the church desperately needs. So it says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Here's the hard part. But then, but the young people, you have to set an example for the believers in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, in your purity. This part's the worst part. Because everybody wants influence, everyone wants authority, everybody wants power, everybody wants leadership. But the way that that is earned is not through age. Somehow we have this false view that age is what gives us those things, but it's not what gives us those things. It's actually virtue. We have to be virtuous people. And so this next part of the sermon is not going to be me, middle-aged person, telling young adults what you need to do. This is going to be me, fellow traveler, pastor in the church, fellow follower of Christ, figuring out if we want to be virtuous people, what we need to do. And there's actually something in here for all of us. We have to become virtuous people. Because of Facebook, because Twitter, we've, we've gotten this false sense of the world that, that we do this thing called virtue signaling, which means all day on Facebook, I can retweet and resend every Washington Post and Tina Fey video and just feel like, yes, I'm standing up for racism. Look at me. And then in that, I send along my snarky comments so my friends really know that I'm with them. And unintentionally, I've become the most self-righteous jerk of all time. And who did Jesus have the most awful things to say about? It was self-righteous people. And so virtue signaling is just simply an easy nod to the people around us that, I, that all of us who already agree, we agree, and we can continue to just dehumanize the people who are not like us. But that is not going to move the ball forward. That is not going to move the church forward. But rather, what the church needs are leaders, especially young leaders, who are virtuous people. A virtuous 20-year-old has way more street cred than the hypocritical, self-righteous, middle-aged person or adult. All day. We have to be virtuous people. So what, is it, what do we set an example in? In our speech, in our conduct, in our love, in our faith, in our purity. So I'm just going to tackle the, the last three because, well, I don't have all day. Okay. First one, set an example in your love. This is an incredible picture because I'm willing to bet every single person in this room had some sort of an emotional reaction to it. And I'm willing to bet that that emotional reaction wasn't like, praise God for reconciliation when people from different walks of life and different political parties and different ethnicities can come together and embrace each other. I'm pretty sure that was not your first thought or first emotion. What a crime for all of us. We have to be people who set an example in our love. Hating people who hate people is not love. Loving people, loving the humanity of people, seeing past people's demographic, whatever their thing is, but seeing the actual humanity of them is what Jesus Christ has called us to do. The people who are enemies. It's Jesus who's the one who says, you love your enemies, right? While we were enemies, Jesus died for us. Jesus, everything about Jesus models that we love people, to the cost of our own pride, our own ego, even our own lives. We love, love people. I love the story. There's a story where there's a centurion who needs a, his son to be healed. And Jesus, he asked Jesus for that. And Jesus should be like, you're a centurion. You're a Roman. You are the exact picture of oppression. And you are crushing my people. And you know what? I'm actually going to zap your whole family. But Jesus says, Okay. Your faith, because of your faith, I'm going to heal your kid. It is Jesus who compels us to love, and if we are going to be virtuous people, it begins that we have to quit dehumanizing each other, and we have to genuinely love one another. Second is this. We have to set an example in our faith. This is going to sting just a little bit. But I think we have slipped into this weird version of making politics our religion, and making our political leaders God. And we want so much more from our political leaders, what they can never offer because they are human beings and who, well, there's a lot to say about all that. But that is not who we are. We set an example in our faith. We are Jesus' people. We are people who have been bought and redeemed by Jesus, who are now commissioned to be reconcilers of the whole world. We lead with who Jesus is, with the hope of Jesus, with the church of Jesus, with the activism of Jesus, with, with, with all—we lead with those things. And I would just, as a, as a, as a challenge, just go back through your last couple of weeks, Facebook or Twitter or however you choose to communicate your stuff. And all of us, unintentionally, we have these values, but I'm pretty sure that Jesus, the hope of Jesus, the fruit of Jesus, the servant, the sacrifice of Jesus is not what we lead with. We have these values that are Jesus-y, and then we crush one another. That's what the whole world does, but what the world needs is the church of Jesus which means we have to be people who are working out our faith, who are growing in our faith, who don't just go, oh, I know that, I know that, I don't do this, I don't do that, therefore I am good to go. But we are people who always move after Christ. This whole vision statement of engage with the spiritually hungry towards a life in Christ isn't like, and then you've arrived. This means if you've known Jesus your entire life, if you're the gene sages of our church and you know everything there is to know about Scripture and you work it all out and you have an incredible life in marriage and ministry, you still move towards him. He's teaching a class right now helping the oldest generation maybe wrestle with that what if six-day creationism wasn't true? An old guy wrestling with old people because he's still learning, trying to wrestle with how faith and life and science all works. He is a hero to me. We are people who move towards Jesus. So it's not just young adults who need to move towards him. We all do. And then when we do, we set an example in our faith. And lastly is this. To set an example in your purity. I wish this part wasn't in there. I would love to just love, love, and I would love to just have faith. But there is this weird thing. Whether you're a Christian or not, there's this weird thing in all human beings that a person's purity, and when it comes to specifically, when it comes to our sexuality, about how that helps us engage the world or flee from the world. What's crazy is this. God created human beings for intimacy. I love the picture that's painted in the Garden of Eden that he makes male and female, and together they're naked, and together they're one. And together, in their intimacy and in their nakedness, that is this picture of the image of God. So sexuality is the core part of who we are. It's the core part in which we relate to one another and which we relate to God. And so when we are out of bounds sexually, it actually impacts our relationship with God, it impacts our relationship with each other, and it impacts our relationship with the church. And so we have to actually do something about it. And it totally sucks, and I get it so unfair to be a middle-aged man because I do not even know. The way in which I was formed sexually, the way in which pornography manifested itself in my life is so different, right? I, I got to break into my neighbor's dad's little lockbox that my, that my buddy and I found, right? Or I stayed up late and watched Cinemax on the squiggly lines. You know, some of your old people, you're like, I remember those days, right? That's how we like got our rocks off, right? Or if we were super gutsy, we would actually go and buy a magazine. Like that's what it took if we were gonna go uh, get a hold of something dirty. And all of my formation, that's what it was. And it wasn't until college, in the middle of college, until finally the internet came and made that way easier, right? But mostly I was formed, so at that point it's just like, oh, this is really exciting, oh crap, now I have to figure out a way to deal with it. Now, dealing with pornography is so challenging. And I think we've done a disservice in the church because I know on my left hand, and one of them has only three-quarters of a finger, that's the number of people that I know who go, ah, I don't struggle with that. That's not my deal. That's not my world. That's that's it. Of all the Christian men that I know who are honest and who share life with me, that is it. That is all that I know who go, I'm free from that. God bless you. But the Christian story is this. There's pornography, and it's bad, and it's going to ruin you, and you're a pervert. Or... You love Jesus, and it's not your deal anymore. So you have victory in Christ until you fall, and then you're a pervert again. Now, the church has to change the way in which we wrestle with this and talk about this. For this reason, I'm reading this sociology book about Generation Z. That's current high schoolers, this next block of 20-year-olds, from 18 down. And what they said is pornography is actually going to be the wallpaper of their life. For me, it's like, oh, it's this like danger zone that I'm trying my hardest to protect my heart and life from for people who are 20 younger it's going to be the wallpaper of their life it's like breathing for them and if we just pretend this doesn't matter or doesn't have an impact or or they must have victory we are not doing anybody a service but we actually have an opportunity to set an example to say oh my goodness what god has for us and for the church is so much more because our purity allows us to see the actual humanity of one another our purity allows us to actually engage in intimacy with the real human being. And when we are free and when we are holy and we're striving for holiness, all of a sudden we are free to be intimate with God and with the church and with each other. Almost everybody I know who struggles with the church and who's left the church is, is always around some version of, of broken sexuality and not sure if the church has a space for them. But we have to make space young people who have such a different growing up uh, paradigm than us older people do, and a space for them to move towards Christ. Just like whatever your sin issue is, whatever your garbage is, there's a space that we move towards Christ. And how amazing that we as the church are people who are full of love, and we're full of hope, we're full of redemption, and we're full of transformation, which means it doesn't matter how deep and dark the rabbit hole that you've jumped down is. As Christians, we walk and we stand in the light. And what is crazy, what I found in my life and many people who I know in their life, when they go, when they are free and they stand in the light and go, this is my deal, whatever your deal is, the sunlight causes all that to wither away. And then we're free to be born again and born renewed in Christ. So I wish that wasn't on the list, but what a helpful thing. Gosh, if we get that under control, if we deal with that, then we get to be intimate with God intimate with each other, and we get to have intimacy with the church. So don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for all the believers. And you have to hear this, young adults, we need your example. The things that you bring to the table, your passion, your perspective, your worldview, your gifts, your abilities, the way that you connect with God, we need those in our world. So here's a question I want to ask is, who is God inviting you to share your life with? This last spring, I took the 20-somethings on a retreat up in Tahoe. And, um, and what was incredible about this retreat is I, I, I did it on mentorship. And so I sat down with them and said, hey, we're going to talk about being a mentor. And they're all like, okay. Because you can imagine, right? You're a young adult, uh, the adult. The old person in front of you says, hey, we're going to talk about mentorship. And, uh, and so we talked about, like, you know, we have mops and we have mentor moms, which is really great. But in mentor moms... A mentor mom isn't being mentored by a mops person. If you're a mother of a preschooler, you're trying to figure out how to parent a preschooler. Someone who's made it through it has nothing to learn from you. They've done it. Praise God. That season's over, right? They're like, we'll help you. We'll walk through that with you. That's what we think mentoring is. I know how to do this thing, and you walk behind me. But what's so incredible about mentorship in the church, it's not like that. Mentorship in the church is where we come together. We sit across the table from one another, old person, young person, different demographic, whatever, and we walk towards Christ together. A mentoring relationship in the church is a relationship where each of us bring the best of who we are, the best of our passions, the best of our talents, and we walk together towards Christ together. So my question is, who is God inviting you to share your life with? That if we are going to be people, the whole church, the whole and healthy church, if we're going to make space for the young adults in our lives, just like everybody, we can't dehumanize or, or, or categorize people based on, on who they are. We actually have to be with them to learn from them. And so I'd encourage you, if you're an older person— Who's someone young in your life that you can become a listener to? A daughter, a grandson, a student, a colleague, someone in our church. Who is someone in your life that you can be a listener to and you can walk alongside, not because you know everything, but because you're going to walk alongside with them and they're going to walk alongside you. And every young person I've ever shared life with has always impacted me 10,000 times more than I've ever impacted them. And if you're a younger person, would you have grace for some older person to try to figure out what it means to be young and how to use Snapchat and what that means for your life and faith and can leverage their wisdom and their influence and their season in life to help you run after all the dreams that God has put into you. This was a hard passage for me to preach and an interesting one to wrestle with because I want to be young. But we, as older people, must, I implore us with all of our hearts to not look down On the young people around us on the young adults around them but to leverage our seat at the table our wisdom our abilities our um whatever we bring so that they can fully get after it and my young adult friends i hope that you hear from me at the bottom of my heart we need you in the church but we need you to be virtuous people we need to be virtuous people this world needs virtuous people so that by God's grace, some may come to know and love Jesus. Let me pray for us, and then we'll be all done. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, and our gracious God, I thank you for my friends in this room. I thank you that your word just cuts to the heart of who we are. And so we come before you with our hands open. Ask God, what do you have for me? No matter our demographic, our age, who we are, but what do you have for me? What Do you have for me to learn? Who do you have me to learn from? Where's an area in my life that is so out of bounds? We come before you. And we come before you freely because we come before you and we don't find an angry God, a disappointed God, but we find a loving and gracious Father who sits us up on our knee and is so glad to share life with us, to walk through life with us, so forgive us, for heal us, transform us, empower us, and may we fully run after all that you've put in front of us to do so that we can be good news to a world that is in desperate need of it. And may all, all the honor and glory be to your son Jesus, both now and forevermore. Amen and amen.